And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow Americans, welcome to the Inspired Service Podcast. My name is Noah Scheinbaum, and I'm thrilled to be joined today with Mr. Joe Croce, the Acting Director for Strategy, Policy, and Plans at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Joe, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for the time. So really excited today to talk about your career of service because sure. you have an incredible resume. You've done an, an admirable number of things in service to our nation. But I'd like to start with, with your upbringing. Mm-hmm. Grew up in Philadelphia. Tell us what was I did. Was so like? my background's um, a little bit unique, I think. We grew up, our family's originally from South Philadelphia, and we have moved out towards uh, a little bit outside southwest of, of Philly. Pretty blue-collar family. I think I'm the first person in my family to go to college, then uh, of course to move on to even even more advanced degrees. So that childhood experience has laid within inside a certain sense of service, right? Hard work, pride in your work, and doing a good job. And what did, what were your parents doing when you were growing? So up? when I was growing up, my father was a mechanic. There was it's an organization called SEPTA. It's uh, it's the Philadelphia version of Metro. He worked on the subways. He was an air conditioning repairman. My mother at the time, she was working as um, a daycare teacher, kinder care. Neither one had a, had a high school diploma at the time. Uh, my father went back originally, or a little bit later, to get it. And, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty difficult time for him financially and time-wise. So you... Uh, were, were, did your parents also go to college? They did not, no. At least I'm the first one to go. Now, my mother eventually decided to go to night school at Delaware County Community College. Mm-hmm. So it was one of my main inspirations because it was, it was again, it was tough financially for a number of reasons. But yet on top of that, my mother kept our family together. And on top of all that, 8, 9 o'clock at night, she would sit down, open the books, and study till 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. And I made it a point when I saw her to do that, to sit down with her when she went to college to go do her studies. I'd asked to go with her, and that kind of got me in a routine to try to excel academically. It was a huge inspiration in my life. That's an incredible work ethic. And you, so you didn't go too far from home from college. You came down to Georgetown. I did, that's right. So actually, there was, there was a little stop in between. There's a school called Villanova University. I'm sure many of us have heard of right outside Philadelphia. Now, Villanova is a cool spot because um, it, some listeners may know the name Croce. Um, I'm relatives with Jim Croce, who is a singer, singer-songwriter in the 1970s. My father and Jimmy grew up with each other outside Philly. Same story, you know, blue-collar family. And Jimmy actually went to Villanova as well. So the only other family member I'm aware of who went to college was Jimmy. I went there for a year, and there's a big plaque on the wall for Jim Croce. And then... Uh, I actually transferred after my freshman year down to Georgetown University in 1995, and I finished my studies down here, which brought me to Washington, D.C. What did you think? Philadelphia, Washington? Oh, let me tell you. It was, it was, I, had, I had my challenges for the first couple of years. There used to be, in Georgetown, there was a little restaurant there. I think it's a, it's a salad place now, but there was a little restaurant. It was the Philadelphia Cheesesteak Factory. And now I think there's, there's one more of those somewhere, Tyson's Corner Mall or whatnot. But anyway... They used to bring their bread in. Anybody knows Philly? A cheesesteak is based on the bread. And I was so homesick that I would go down there a couple times a week to have Tasty Cakes, which I didn't have in D.C. at the time. Um, it was phenomenal. It was tough. But as time grew on, I got to understand and better appreciate the differences between 
Washington, D.C. and a city like Philadelphia that has a little bit more historical roots, I would say, in terms of uh, different social classes coming in. Again, being an Italian, American, um, it's kind of used to that upbringing. I always thought the key to a cheesesteak was the cheese whiz. But it is a cheese whiz. It depends on what, yeah, that's exactly right, and the onions. Uh, yeah, you're not far off. I'm, I'm a New Yorker, though. There so. we go. <laughs> Sorry, man. Eagles got one more recently than we do, though, so I can't, I can't talk too much trash. Uh, so you graduate Georgetown, and was military service something you always thought of, never thought of? How did, how did you end up in the military? You know, I, I, there, there has always been, and, and it was something in my upbringing, there's always been a sense of service. Mm. And it was just something that is attractive. We don't, we don't come from a military family, right? The, the only two other people I knew, oh my, both my grandparents, Jim, myself, and my brother, were really the only Kirchies that I know who have actually served in the military. It was just really a sense of service that brought me to it. And But people serve in a lot of different ways, right? right. I mean, your, your mom served her community growing up. I mean, you can serve children. You can serve your religion. You can serve in all sorts of ways. What was it about serving your country that, that particularly stood out to you? Yeah, that's right. So... You know, it's my, my ideas have evolved on that through time. I, you know, I'll admit, when I was first in high school and going to college, there was that, you know, that patriotic, this is what I need to do. And I'm glad I did it. It was the right decision to make. So let me back up a little bit and tell you about my decision in the Marine Corps. When I was in college, they, you know, you can go officer or enlisted route. And I remember when I was going through uh, Villanova, I remember I had an ROTC scholarship. Yeah. They said, let me ask you, do you want to do this because you want to be a Marine? Or do you want to do it because you want to be an officer? And there's no knock either way. But I remember him saying, he was a crusty old uh, gunnery sergeant, I'll tell you the answer is if you weren't able to become an officer, would you still become a Marine? Mm-hmm. Transfer down to Georgetown, and Georgetown did not have a Navy Marine Corps ROTC program. They had one at GW, and I just I found it too time-consuming to be commuting back and forth. But that little voice in the back of my head saying, why do you want to do this? Do you want it for the rank or do you want to do it to serve your country and to to, to serve so i enlisted mm-hmm. i enlisted in the reserves mm-hmm. which a lot of people really questioned at the time so i had had students i was an ra and i had students who uh tended to got in trouble every now and then and then when i got forward deployed to iraq i'm out there as a sergeant and i see a captain walk by croce dude what happened <laughs> So that's a long-winded way of saying at the time it was a very it was a very deep sense of patriotism. It still is. Mm. I mean, don't get me wrong. It still is. But as time went on, I realized that uh, it is service. It's service to the people. The United States government is a, is a unique one. And I believe in the democratic institutions and what I can contribute to my small little role. Absolutely. No, and, and that's incredible. And, and you served... Uh, I believe it was, it was Kosovo and Iraq. I served in Kosovo. That's correct. And then that was 2001. You know, some of us quite may forget. Yeah. It was it was quite a time. It was it was challenging, and we thought there was going to be a, a renewed civil war in the Balkans. So uh, we were assigned to do civil affairs operations out there, working with the people. It was an experience, and it prepped me for Iraq a couple of years later. Mm. And I was part of the, the initial evasion with the Marines going in, uh, and then I got out shortly after that. That's just incredible. So you're you're you just graduated from college. That's I mean, right. Half your cl- most of your classmates are what they're they're in banking, they're consulting. They're at that time, it's interesting because yeah. at that time, if you remember, the economy was hot, and I remember some of the big names coming down to Georgetown on the weekend. Some of my friends would brag, oh, "JP Morgan's picking me up," and they would come down with the limo. They would come down, pick him up, take him up, wine him and dine him in New York. So they were the uh, the mini go go years until, of course, September 11th happened. Things began to change, but. Uh, 
Yeah, it was a different time than it is now. But you're out, you're out, you know, in basically in combat situations, yeah. and your friends are taking desk jobs. And what was it like trying to keep up those relationships when you're you're overseas and you're you know you're the same age, but your your life could be more different. I got to tell you that it it actually facilitated it because mm-hmm. it stuck out. It made it interesting because of the fact that so many of my friends kept pretty much on the same career path, and that and that's fine. And I was kind of an anomaly. I would have those relationships checking, hey, we noticed that you're out doing this as a sergeant. And I'm up in New York City in investment banking. What's going on? And ironically, some of those those friends are still my best friends today. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, well, that's pretty cool. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of podcasts, a lot of media that focuses on yes. military service. Yes. We're trying to focus a little Absolutely. bit less. So, so, that's right. But this is a great transition to, to, there was something about those jobs that appealed to you. Because when you came back. You did go into finance. That is exactly right. So the finance one was a little bit different. I wanted to, I thought I had to do it, right? That was where the, what my perceived pressure of graduating college and what I needed to do. And just, I thought it would be fun to go up in New York City and make some money. And, uh, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. But I realized it wasn't me. I never really felt fully comfortable that this was my long-term career path. And I remember being up there and uh, kind of sharing some of my stories. You know, this is kind of cool, but let me tell you what I did before I came up here. At the time, I worked for Customs and Border Protection, or excuse me, uh, U.S. Customs at the time, and I was part of their congressional affairs shop. And I was like, you don't know what it's like to prepare a head of an agency for a congressional hearing. And I kept on reminiscing on that. When September 11th happened, I remember reading about the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, and it just, it hit the spot in me. And I heard all the challenges, right? The bureaucratic realities and the turf battles and some of the naysayers that came out on day one. But there was something conceptually about Homeland Security that kind of tugged at my heart. So some of that mission that was, it did. was kind of missing. It did. So 2008 happened, the stock market crashed. Mm-hmm. And I left. I left willingly. Um, but fortunately, I left at the right time because things kind of got flushed out after I left in our organization. But nevertheless, I came back down to I was looking for jobs. I was actually in Japan at the time, and I saw my old job open up. My old job that I had right out of college as a customs congressional liaison. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to put a resume in. Put my resume in. And it just happened to be by chance. The resume made it through the cut. And it just also happened to be that some of the old people I worked for happened to come back. This is 10 years after the fact. And they called me up, and they said, are you serious about coming back? I said, yeah. And it brought me back down. I guess it's 2009 time frame. I'm still here. So you went back into the same I went job. Right back to the same job. No pay, no, no, so raise, it's none of that stuff. Interesting point you mentioned because at the time I was probably GST equivalent up in New York City and I was so committed for some reason to come back to government service. I came back in as a GS7. And if. Not sure if you're familiar with the, the, you know, the rank structure, but that's generally an entry if you're coming in with an undergraduate degree. Having nearly 10 years of experience, but I still came back as a GS7. Part of it was because it was a necessity, but not that much of a necessity. There were other opportunities. I just wanted to get back in the federal government, and I took it. Yeah. Did you look back? Not at all. No regrets? No regrets. No regrets at all. It's been uh, very kind to me since then. Mm-hmm. So you... How long you were in that job for for what, a couple couple years or how long did you stay over at customs? Yeah, so off and on it was probably about eight years. Oh, that was the majority of my work down here, and because of my New York experience, my banking experience, I fell into the world of appropriations. Mm-hmm. 
and that has been my niche pretty much since then. So I did appropriations at Customs Border Protection. I was up on the Hill. Right. I was detailed to the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Homeland Security. And then more recently, I did a stint over as a program examiner at Office Management Budget mm-hmm. OMB, helping to formulate the FY 2019 budget request. I know as it relates to the immigration account. So I was uh, the lead examiner for Immigration and Customs Enforcement for 2019. That is that is a hot place to be. I can only imagine. Oh, oh that's a whole separate podcast. <laughs> we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. But I, I mean, first of all, you so you made the dreaded branch shift. You went executive to legislative. I did. What was that like? I thought I thought those are sworn enemies. In the, if you look at it from appropriations, um, it's one combined process. You know. I would encourage some of the future podcasts, maybe to talk to some appropriators, a continuous line of story, but it's it's a unique culture and glue that keeps together the process behind the scenes, right? We all know what we see on TV, but there's a lot of things that happen behind the scenes. And it, it's not that much of a jump when you're in the appropriations world. A lot of staff will go from the executive to the legislative branch back and forth. So not as uncommon as people might think. Right. Okay, so you, you were on the subcommittee, the Appropriations right. Subcommittee. As, yeah, I was there as a detailee. Yep. As a detailee, and then you stayed. You went. You worked on the... the I, I went from there. Um, I then worked as for staff on a member of the Homeland Security Appropriations Subcommittee, and he was the vice chairman at the time, so I staffed him on Homeland Security Appropriations issues. So I was helped the liaise between his office and the committee. And so, so you're jumping in the ring. That's a that's an elected official. Right. That's right. Was there was there any thought? Was there any concern? Of, oh gosh, I don't I don't want to cross the political threshold. Did you worry about that decision at all to kind of go work for a political? No, not at all. I mean, it's it's you know, people respect that decision more than one might think, hmm. especially outside of Washington D.C. I think the natural tendency is to think if I show any type of political interest. Who I am and what I believe in, it's detrimental. But, you know, unfortunately, Washington, D.C., it's a, it's a political town. So to take a, to, to take a stand and work for a member um, in some ways kind of solidifies who you are mm-hmm. and how you're seen by your colleagues. That's the old bring your whole self to work mantra. It, it, yeah, exactly. It's People like to know who they're dealing with, right? Because there's a lot of image... A lot of image anywhere. There's a lot of image in politics. But if you take a stand, issue agnostic, right? You take a stand, and this is what I believe in. The fact that you're coming out and saying this is what I believe in, you get a lot of respect from a lot of people. Hmm. How would you describe what was the culture like on the Hill, especially as compared to— Oh, my to goodness. It, is, it was the most, most amazing culture I think I've ever worked with wow. in my life. It is, I would That's highly— That's from a Marine. That is, if I would highly encourage, uh, especially if uh, any of the listeners of the podcast are coming out of college now, one or two years out of college, to get up on the hill. Work as a staffer, even start as an intern, and just get into the culture. It is an exciting. Now, I will tell you, I'm partial to the House. There's a little bit of a cultural divide between the House and the Senate, right? The Senate tends to be a little bit more uh, old style, a little bit more genteel. The House tends to be a little bit more rough and tough. Uh, reputation of a little rumbling going on. I love the house. You got a lot of action. You got a lot of energy. A lot of creativity. Mm. It's almost like a self-startup environment. Yeah, 
Yeah, and, and smaller offices, right? How smaller offices. Um, you know, you're still part of the federal government, but you're done so in a way that, you know, say bluntly, you don't have the career protections that you do on the executive side of the house. And mm-hmm. that means two things. A, it attracts a certain type of person. And B, it also means that, in reality, you don't have that job security, so it kind of keeps people on their toes. Yeah, yeah. But it's exciting, and everyone knows that they're getting into do you, have any, do you have to do any negotiation up there? Do you get in any good, any good tussles with anybody? No, you know. Again, I don't know how things are at this point, but it was a very, very bipartisan experience. Mm. And at least on the staff level, again, if you know where that person stands and you respect that person, we're starting to see a lot of this change. But most of it was a very polite, professional give and take. All the you know the Republican staffers drink at one bar. The Democratic staffers oh, no, drink that's, at another. You, no. you may think so. Oh, so this is, uh, <laughs> this isn't how it always was, huh? Well, at least how it was maybe yeah, five, six, seven, eight years ago. And again, times may have changed, but <laughs> yep. I have not. I've not yet done my my rotation, so I, I don't know. It's, this is all this is all hearsay. Uh, so what's been like coming back into the into into the executive branch after that kind of that spirit of comedy and and this this kind of legislating experience. How have you found it transitioning back into... Yeah, that's a great question, actually, because that is really what the heart of the message that I that I would like to share on today's podcast is continuity, right? Belief in the system. It gives you that more holistic approach of how the government should and does operate. It's easy to get into a certain routine and to see things in a certain perspective, but when you understand... Government is about service to the American people and to deliver a common good. Mm. It's about compromise. And it's about delivering an executive branch. We have to deliver and execute according to the laws of this country. There are many of us who absolutely believe that and take that to heart. When you come in with those different perspectives, you get how it all comes together, and it becomes this driving catalyst of why I'm here. I love that. I love that a lot. What's, uh, tell us about something. What are you really proud of? to have worked on in your time in government? So one of the things that I'm most proud of working is when I came up to the Hill, I was given an account, something to work, uh, a U.S. visit, Dubai metrics. Mm. And none of us really knew at the time, but the budget request that came up, I believe it was just 2013, actually proposed to rip up that office and send it to different parts of different agencies. And I remember my boss at the time saying, it's your account now, you better figure something out. And I did. So I had to come up with a proposal, what are we gonna do? And we essentially created, now of course the chairman and the committee members do this through their legislation, so everything I do is recommendations, but the staff recommendations I put forward were really laying the blueprints for what we saw were a whole new office. Mm. That was a lot of give and take. That was a lot working behind the scenes, calling the government leadership, asking what are their resources, coming up with an organizational chart, a mission statement, and drafting not only what this looks like, but then drafting the legislation. And it's, it's kind of cool for us because you're typing on Word, and it feels like an academic experience and an exercise. But then you send it to GPO for, for uh, typefacing, and then it comes back in a form of a bill, and you're like, oh, my goodness. I just proposed draft legislation for a member of the United States Congress. And then when you see it get introduced and the members modified and make it through the process, that was by far one of the coolest experiences. And by the way, 
we did create an agency and we even renamed it. It's called Obim nowadays. Hmm. That's heady stuff. It was, it was, yeah, it was, it was really cool. Not many people get to see that perspective of how an agency's created. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a ton of power. And what what's amazing is I've always I mean I've always admired the typeface on those on those legislative bills. Now oh, yeah. I know where it comes from. I thought I thought they just had a magic typewriter up there. Yeah, it's uh, if it people so have the sausages made, I think they'd be truly amazed. <laughs> so well, so that's a that's an interesting question, right? So you you were dra- here, you are drafting legislation, literally what from your mind into existence. Mm-hmm. How do you stay humble through all that? I mean, it, it's are you not a shadow government kind of unelected official running it's, this whole thing? You, you, you are asking the key point of government service. You have to – there is a core group of people in the government, both on the executive and the legislative branch, who truly, absolutely believe in what they do. You have to bring – A, you have to believe it. And B, you have to realize what you are and what we do as staff. We are staff. Mm. We serve at the pleasure of the president. We serve for a member of Congress. So if you keep that perspective in mind, this is not my legislation. It is my recommendation. And you have to be willing to take a step in the background, give it to your boss, and let he or she run with it. Mm. That's such an important point. Can you tell right away when you see somebody who's in it for themselves? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, w- I, w- I will say this pretty clearly. It's It's been my experience to date that that eventually catches up, mm. right? It's those who it's it's a character. I think more people will be impressed to, to hear the good side. You read the news nowadays; yeah. it seems so negative and a lot of political bickering. But behind the scenes, on a staff level, we do care about each other. We do care about character. We care about integrity. We care about honesty. And those people whom I've seen have been most inspiring in my politi- in my uh, professional career here are those who are high capacity, highly smart can succeed anywhere outside of the government, but yet they're very humble and they believe in what they're doing and they have that sense of service. Yeah, I, I appreciate that because the narrative today really is that no. there's, we're, not work, we're not working together, certainly not working across any aisles, and that the government's kind of a big you know, mess. What do you think, I mean, how, do you, how, do you, how does it make you feel when you read all this coverage? Does it feel like they're describing your government? Honestly, I will tell you what I think of The Wizard of Oz. And that is exactly, if you look at, Politics has to be, and it is by creation, right? There's a certain public interface and a certain public message. But the reality of it is behind the scenes, as we would all appreciate, just like any industry, you know, there is that image and there's the reality of how things are done. Mm. So for those of us who are on the inside, we kind of expect that there is a certain thing that the politicians have to do. And, and I'm not mocking on it. it is, it's a necessity. There's a certain role that they have to play. You have to be willing to accept that reality. But it goes back again to this sense of humility, that if I'm truly in it for myself, you're not going to make it. But if you truly are for the service and you're willing to be humble behind the scenes and give them some of the credit, this stuff will not bother you one bit. What, what I appreciate about you is, is there's there's a, a sense of optimism and a sense that this is that, that things are actually working better here than the American public maybe knows. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I would think so. I mean, it's... Again, going back to the main point of you can't believe in everything that you say. I would encourage people to get involved, get to know some of you know some of their colleagues in the Washington D.C. area who are working in this field. You're going to be pleasantly surprised to see what we do. Yeah. Do you think is D.C. going to be home forever for you? D.C. will be home forever for yeah. me. D.C. will. I, I say that now, but it's uh, it's a great area. 
Also, again, you know, assuming some of the listeners here are outside of Washington, D.C. area, I had a little bit of trouble coming back down from the New York City area. It was a very distinct lifestyle, distinct culture. Restaurants sure. were phenomenal. <laughs> but now that I have young children, um, it, you realize the good side of, of Washington, D.C., and it, it's a great place to raise a family. I and think- to have some fun. And to have some fun <laughs> at the same time, so. It's a great little little town, and I, I appreciate you bringing your kids into it because that's something we haven't talked about. Yeah. You, you know, when you when you began your career in service, did not have a not have a family, not have kids. Mm-hmm. How is your how is your kind of view of service and what it means to serve evolved as you brought children into the world? It has been more refined. Um, believe it or not, it's kept me in check a little bit because service has to be provided in a professional sense but I think we tend to forget that most importantly it also begins with yourself and your family and I will say I've learned probably the hard way of being a little too gung-ho in my work approach Mm -hmm. Um, but you have to make balance you have to make sure that yeah these things are very important but you also have to come home to make sure that you're serving your family being there for your kids do you think you'd want your kids to to be involved, whether it's military service or civilian service, or, or would you want them to go into the private sector? I, you know, it's it's an interesting question because I would leave it to them. I respect, uh, you know, their freedom and, and their choice. I think the the family values that we share and that we've been brought up in my family, and I try to, to, to share with my children. I would not be surprised if they choose that route. Now, as well as I know, a lot of things can change in the next 20, 30 years. The industry in the private sector may be completely different. Same thing in the public sector. Conceptually, I would absolutely love for him to follow this type of career path. Mm, that's great. I, I respect the the agency. Respecting the agency of your children is a great thing too. Yeah. Uh, so, just one or two more. Uh, you've had a variety of experiences. You've really you've kind of moved from topic to topic, and you've right. been in, uh, sitting in a couple a couple different places. What do you think has prepared you to be this kind of Swiss Army knife throughout a government bureaucracy? What experiences, life experiences, or educationally? What what do you point to? I point to my upbringing. Again, going back to that main point, I, I point to the the family values that I was taught of honestly just trying to do the right thing. It may sound simplistic, but I want to try. I always want to try to do the right thing. I want to prove myself, and that becomes the goal in itself. If if you're looking for a certain set professional goal, you may or may not achieve it. But if you have a certain more conceptual, idealistic viewpoint, whatever it may be, that will keep you on track. And more importantly, that will make you who you are. Mm. And that reputation will start to take over and that will begin to generate your career, your network, and your reputation. Look, I have to put a plug in for this as well. Nowadays, one of the things that is – I'm still getting my arms around is social media, right, LinkedIn. It's great. I love it. But I will tell you that, remember, that's just something that leads to who you are as a person and that larger reputation of what you believe in. That's going to truly, truly make you advance in your career. It's such an important point because I think there's, a, there's an unfair uh, assumption today made, up, yeah. made out by a lot of people that if you want to be involved in politics or policy or just any kind of service, you have to put out some kind of veneer of being someone you're not. That's right. You have to kind of That's hide right. stuff or hold stuff back. That's right. And I think, you know, your point is really well taken, that the people who are able to be authentic to themselves... That's right. ...just be genuinely, you know, represent the person who they are, assuming that person is someone who mm-hmm. cares about service and cares about the mission, those are the people who are going to be most effective. That's right. 
What mm-hmm. inspires you about the United States today? What inspires me is, you know, we have a much stronger political process and institution than we might think. And this falls back mainly into my experiences overseas with the Marine Corps in combat areas and in areas with uh, little to no government infrastructure. And when that infrastructure is not there, you truly say it. So, yeah, we have our problems. We have our challenges. We have our bureaucratic and political confrontations. But it's all built in a system. It's all built in the Constitution. It's built in the way we operate. So things are not as bad as they seem. Joe, so are there any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, absolutely. That's perhaps the best question of the whole interview. And my answer to that is this. Try it out. Do not believe the If you have any interest at all in public service, do not believe in everything that you read. I can guarantee you one thing. If you get involved and if you make it known that you are truly believing what you believe in, you're truly being genuine, I promise you will find that there are a core group of people that are going to absolutely astound and stun you. You're going to come across graduates from Harvard, from Yale, from Cornell, and you're going to look at them and you're going to say, my goodness, you could be in the private sector, and many of them have, but yet they stay here, they take the beatings, and they continue to excel in what they do. You will be noticed by them, you will work with them, and I can almost guarantee you, you would excel in in your career, uh, both professionally and then also personally in in your life. What a perfect place to end. Joe, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you for everything that you've done and continue to do. Thank you. For more episodes of the Inspired Service Podcast, please visit us at www.inspiredservice.org and subscribe on iTunes.